What, in your opinion, makes the greatest of all time in their sport? Is there a common denominator that you see cut across these men and women that make them the greatest? They all have touched perfection from one moment to another, but they all want to hold it and grasp it. And it's like a jellyfish and it just slips through their fingers. But when they touch it, it's like being an addict. They want to touch it again and again and again because they know they can. A national champion, an Olympic gymnast, an Emmy-nominated documentarian. Think about what it takes to achieve one of those things, let alone those three. I'm talking about Jennifer Say. You got really started in this at a young age, right? Yeah, I was about six when I started, uh, which is not unusual. Um, it's a fun sport for little kids. And I, you, know, you have to remember, I was starting in the 70s. This was just a few years after Title IX had passed, which gave girls and young women kind of equal opportunity to play sports and do sports in college. There weren't a ton of options for girls in sports. I was sort of choosing between dance, cheerleading, and gymnastics. And Nadia Comaneci hit the stage and, you know, the world stage in 1976. And I was completely enamored. Right. As one was because she was a kid. She was 14 years old and we all related to her. And I was doing sort of rec classes at the time, but then I just became completely obsessed with gymnastics. But we didn't have other choices. There weren't soccer teams and, you know, all this other stuff that my girl, my daughter can play anything my son plays. Those opportunities weren't really there in 1976. Yeah. When did you know that it was more than a sport, a hobby, an interest, that it was a real life passion for you? It sounds crazy to say it, but I was probably seven. I mean, I loved it so much. And you, the thing about gymnastics, which is becoming less true, which I'm grateful for, is it was always viewed as a, a sort of young, or at least as when I did a, a young girl sport, a child sport. And so you had this very narrow window of opportunity. It was sort of viewed that you couldn't really do it past 16 or 17. And so the intensity started very young. And so by seven, I was going four days a week for two or three hours at a time at seven years old, which seems kind of insane. And I started competing at seven and I made elite, which is the, the highest level that you compete for a spot on the national team by the time I was 10. Wow. I've known some gymnasts that have done that sort of thing. And I watched what it did to them and to their families making sacrifices, actually moving to get them to coaches and all of that. It affects a lot. It affects everybody in the family. It, it absolutely does. And I think, you know, I, I um, had some challenges with my family as I left the sport for a long time. But as I look back now and as a parent myself, I think I was a very difficult child to parent. Um, I was very driven. I wanted to go to the next level. I wanted to go to the next club and I wanted to, you know, it wasn't enough to make the national team. I wanted to be in the top six. Like, I don't know what you do with a kid like this. And my parents did absolutely everything they could to support me. Now, one could argue they went too far because the entire family then sort of revolved around me doing the sport. And when it became a bad situation for me and I was very physically damaged and emotionally just falling apart and I wanted to leave, that was just unthinkable at that point for my family because they'd sacrificed so much. Yeah, they put so much into it and it's like, now you want to quit? Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's, it's hard for them to wrap their head around. 
it is, and I and I understand that. But if you can't see what's happening to your child right in front of your face when she is just disintegrating, and I mean, I was suicidal. I it was it was horrible. But and to not be able to see that and put your child first, I think it's a. I would caution any family to put any child's activities at the center of that entire family's existence. It's too much pressure for the kid. Um, I don't know how you find that balance of support, but not, you know, derangement (laughs) and having it take over the entire family's life. Um, So yeah, it got, it got tough towards the end. It was a ton of fun until it wasn't. Um, I had a lot of injuries. I trained on a broken ankle for two years. I broke my femur at the world championships. I kept coming back, but, um, that kind of those, those serious injuries and the pain, because I always came back before I was fully healed, existing in that much pain and training with that much pain wears on the psyche, as you might imagine. And eating disorders are rampant in the sport as well. Yeah, because you get told a lot, you're fat when you're not, you got to be small. It gets really pushed on you. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, we were weighed in twice a day. Our weight was announced over the loudspeaker. We were shamed and called horrible names for gaining a quarter of a pound. Um, I mean, the bullying and fat shaming is sort of incomprehensible to me now. And I thought in my teenage brain, these behaviors that I was adopting because I was told lose three pounds by tomorrow or you can't go to the competition. And keep in mind, I was, you know, 98 pounds and 17 years old at this point. Um, I thought I could manage the behaviors. I thought it was sort of situational and that once I left the sport, I'd be normal. But of course, that's not what happens. You internalize all these beliefs about yourself. And I struggled with an eating disorder for many years after I left the sport. Yeah, it's hard to just turn that off because it just becomes part of who you are and how you see yourself. And your lifestyle. Yeah. You say your parents got tunnel vision, just refused to notice this downward spiral that was going on because they were so focused on really in one sense trying to get you what you wanted, but they had so much invested in it. I guess there's so much conflict they can't see what's going on. They don't want to see it, can't see it, don't see it. Yeah, all that. It's a, it's a good description. And we were so embedded in this community. I mean, my mom worked in the gym at the front desk. You know, her identity was very much tied to me being one of the best kids in the gym all the time. We moved our family from New Jersey to Allentown, Pennsylvania. I initially moved by myself and lived with a coach at 14. That was too difficult. My mother moved. Um, then the whole family moved. Um, so we reorchestrated our entire lives around my gymnastics. And that's a lot of sacrifice for parents. I would just, it, it's it's hard. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, I would say I wouldn't do that right now for one of my kids. I think it's too much pressure for a child. I don't think it's healthy for the family dynamic, but I don't fault them for it. They were trying to be supportive. Right, of course. Is it your fear that this kind of thing is still going on today in gymnastics? Oh, yeah. I mean, we didn't get to it, but I wrote a book in 2008 um, called Chalked Up, which was a memoir about my time in gymnastics. I, you know, I continued to suffer um, from basically what was a culture of abuse, you know, extreme emotional, physical abuse. There is sexual abuse, as, as we now know, because of the case of, of, of Larry Nasser, but it was very prevalent and present when I was doing it as well. The national team coach in the 80s, the Olympic coach, is now banned from the sport for uh, sexually assaulting athletes on the national team. Um, this was the environment that we 
grew up in. And I continued to struggle with that into my 30s. And I eventually wrote a book about it. Now, I did not realize how controversial it would be. You know, I thought all of this was an open secret, not a secret secret that we weren't allowed to talk about, although I should have gleaned that. Um, And so I was just, it was not the first time I've been dragged on the internet and called horrible names. Now it was in a smaller, tinier community before. It was sort of gymnastics and the larger youth sports movement, but I was deemed a liar and a grifter, just sort of bitter about not making the Olympics and out to make a buck and, you know, dragging these good men through the mud, these these coaches who abused young children for no reason. Um, That I went, I endured for 10 years. Well, right. The book Chalked Up really pulled the curtain back on all of that. You did receive a lot of praise for the book as well, but you were attacked. And as you say, people were just saying, oh, just sour grapes because you didn't get what you wanted. So now you wanted to trash the sport. That was basically the the, the assessment. Most of that was coming from inside the community um, because I was criticizing our community. People outside, it was sort of more accepting. You know, I shined a light. They watched gymnastics every four years at the Olympics. They thought it was really cool. And these bouncy little cute girls were jumping around and they were like, oh, I never thought it was that bad. Like they didn't necessarily question my accounting of it, but inside the sport, um, I mean, I was essentially excommunicated, but you know, it's not just being called names on the internet, you know, being threatened with lawsuits. And I had to cancel readings because there was violence that was threatened and all of these kinds of things. So it's fine. I got through it. I think the most, I, the, the thing that just still doesn't sit right with me is, you know, Larry Nasser, and I know you had Judge Ecoline on recently. I think you spoke with her recently, but Larry Nasser, who was the Team USA gymnastics doctor for 30 years, went to prison for life for abusing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of young athletes. And, it, you know, when that story broke, it, it implicated the entire sport and the culture because he was harbored, aided and abetted by the leaders in the sport. And so now suddenly we were allowed to talk about this. Um, and everyone who came at me said, oh, we always stood with you, which is a lie. Yeah. <laughs> welcome to the welcome to the fight. But it's it's not true. Um, but someone has to go first. Someone has to say a thing first. You obviously are a woman of great determination. You have the ability to discipline set an objective, stay with it, go after it. And when you wrote Chalked Up, you were an outcast, ostracized by the community. And I've really looked at what happened after that book, what some of the comments and feedback, really where it came from and what it was. And the people that were saying a lot of the things they were saying knew damn well that what you were saying was true. They, in fact, were experiencing what you were calling out, but yet they were closing ranks because I guess once you're in the middle of it, it's like cognitive dissonance. You have to justify it in your own mind in order to continue to go through it. You have to find some way to make it okay. But it was so ironic that a lot of the people that were yelling the loudest were actually suffering what you were talking about the suffering being. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I think that's one of the great sort of ironies and one of the most harmful aspects is that, I mean, it's almost cult-like. So you're conditioned as an athlete to believe that it's your fault. If you are feeling pain, emotional, physical, it's your fault. You were, if you, if you're think, if you think you're hungry 
and they're screaming at you that you ate too much and you're fat, it's your fault because you ate too much. If you are limping around on a broken ankle and trying to train and you're told you're a lazy piece of garbage, it's your fault. You're not injured, you're lazy. And so you internalize this shame and it's all your fault. And you carry that with you beyond the sport, just like the eating disorder. And so, yes, those that close ranks, they were suffering that same sort of conditioning um, that they believed it was them. Now, I think what's really interesting is the film that I produced, which you referenced, Athlete Day, which came out in, um, in, in 2020, what I really wanted to do was connect the Nasser story to the larger culture of abuse. And it prompted this outpouring of young athletes around the world and retired athletes telling their stories of abuse. And the, the letters that I got, emails, I guess is more accurate, I didn't even know this was abuse. I knew I was suffering, but I didn't connect it. I would hear the most egregious stories about sexual assault, and I thought, oh, lucky, I did not go through that. But for them, the way it was laid out in the film, they realized that their continued suffering was a result of this emotional, psychological, and physical abuse, and they could name it finally. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you doing? What do you mean? I'm making Just keep it simple. I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Brav Bros, two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just the vo- keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Brav Bros. Good job. I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses. Or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Dr. Corey Yeager is an NBA psychotherapist and author of a great book called How Am I Doing? 40 Conversations to Have with Yourself. I've read it cover to cover, and I'm going to talk about not all 40 of these conversations because I want you to buy the book and read it. You don't just need to read it. You need to use it. But we're going to talk about that today. How did you get on this path doing the things that you're doing? What got you interested in helping people actualize themselves and be all of who they can be. So my grandmother, um, when I was a young kid, at about age, I think I was about 10 years old, she pulled me to the side and said, son, you have a gift. And the reason I'm telling you that I see this gift in you is because I have it. And it's, and it's called discernment. Um, I didn't really know what my grandmother was talking about, but I had watched her be a person that people came to continuously, engaged with, asked questions, And she moved with such a wisdom, Dr. Phil, um, that I was intrigued. I don't think I understood why I was intrigued, but I was. Um, So I think I early on had a sense that engaging with others, supporting others was and would be important to me. Um, And then I found a way to couple that intrigue with academic pursuit. Um, I had played football at Long Beach State out here in L.A., but didn't get my degree while I was going to school. I thought I was going to be a pro offensive lineman and make millions of dollars. That didn't happen. And then I didn't have my degree. Um, so found my way back into the academic endeavors. My wife pushed me. 
kept saying to me, honey, you have to get your degree so the boys know that we both have our degree. I was working at Ford Motor Company on the line, working, busting my butt. Um, So started going back to school at night and fell in love relatively quickly with the psychological realm. Um, It was really interesting to me. Uh, And as I pursued that and got that BA, uh, I thought maybe I should do therapy. I didn't really know what it entailed. Um, but it was the best choice in my life. My wife pushed me to do that. And she's been a cornerstone to a lot of the things that I've pursued uh, over the course of my life. Well, you're working with pro athletes now, the Detroit Pistons. And I wrote a op-ed piece not too long ago for Sportico. It had to do with the NFL draft. I said the NFL's just getting ready to mint a new class of millionaires, and I wanted to talk about what they're not telling them. What they're not telling them is that they're going to have, on average, just a little over three years of a career, Yeah, and that 80% of them, two years after being out of the league, are going to be in financial distress and or bankrupt. But they don't tell them that, but yet that's what happens. I'm really interested in your take about this because you and I both played Division One football, and even at that level, we know how disciplined you have to be, how committed you have to be, how dedicated you have to be. Now, take it to the next level, the professional level, which is what, 2 3% of those that play college football make it at that level. So we're talking about intelligent, dedicated, disciplined young men, but yet within five years, they're going to be in life and financial distress, depressed and out of control. How's that happening? You know, I think there are so many factors, Dr. Phil, that go into what you just said. Um, And one of the leading factors is um, all of a sudden, I'll just briefly tell a quick story. I had a, a kid that was that got drafted, and he got drafted, and he, we were sitting and talking after the draft, and he said, Doc, before the draft, I looked at my bank account. I couldn't even take a $20 bill out. I had $12 in my bank account. I get drafted. I sign $12 million in my bank account. But no one had discussed with him what that movement looked like and how that would play out and how you had to be financially astute and understanding that all of these people will be coming to you and you can spend it frivolously and lose it, or you can figure out a different way. There's no one really, Doc, having those deep conversations with them, maybe at a surface level. Um, At the rookie symposium, they may talk a little bit about it. Um, But oftentimes, these young men are coming from financial situations where it was a struggle. And then all of a sudden I have all of this and I don't know what to do with it. And everyone wants a piece of it. So I think that balancing act is extremely difficult. And all the while that you're balancing that and trying to figure it out, you must perform. You said two to three years, four year career is almost a long career in the NFL or the NBA these days. So no one is having these, these extremely important conversations and the kids look back after four or five years and they've lost it all. 
they really have nothing to show. Yeah, and a typical individual's lifetime earnings, even with a college degree, is less than a typical rookie in the NBA or NFL makes just in the two or three years that they're there. Shaq's a good friend of mine, and he oversimplified it a little bit, but not much. But he said when he first got a $20 million deal, he thought, okay, great. I got $5 million that I can go and buy a house in Georgia, and $5 million I can get a house for my mother, and $5 million I can get a house in California, and then $5 million I can just run and play with. (laughs) And he said about October, they came and said, you got a $10 million tax bill here. And he was like, what? Yeah. Now, Shaq's a brilliant guy. I'm sure you probably know him, and he's a smart guy. But he said, I was so naive. I thought, oh, my God. I'm broke. I'm not just broke. I'm $10 million in debt because nobody had sat down and said, okay, look, let's think about this. You you got a $20 million contract here and you've got the money, but you don't have 20, you have 10 and you need to set this aside. And had he not been smart and resilient and able to do different things to start making money and supplementing in addition to that, he could have been one of those people that fell out, but he wasn't, and he didn't, and the rest is history. We know he's done extremely well. But why don't they have you on every team? Why don't they have you talking to every player? Why are you not ubiquitous throughout sports? Because you're having these conversations. Yeah, I think, Doc, you hit on a number of points that are really important, one of which is the stigma that is associated with my work or the psychological world. Um, I think overall, as a major athlete, there's a stigma about the vulnerability of saying I'm struggling with something, especially in the in the psychological realm. So these guys are struggling. They don't realize that 20 million does not mean 20 million. 20 million means, as you said, 10 million. Um, and you're going to have a huge tax bill. No one's discussed that, probably, Doc, because discussing that doesn't pay well. That discussion may not be what pays well, because what pays well is the exploitation of athletes, regardless of color, race, any of those things, that there will always be folks lying in wait to exploit. And that can be for an entertainer, I mean, across the gamut. Um, So... If they don't have one or two people that are firmly rooted and are really in their corner, they're left to the chance of of that struggle, financial struggle, um, kicking in. And that's what's happening time and time and time again. Well, are the role models the problem as young men? I'm talking about while they're in middle school or whatever. Are they looking at role models that have flash cars and flash lifestyles? Because I look at some of the lifestyles of these pro athletes, and I'm thinking, I know I make more money than they do, and I could not begin to afford that lifestyle. And they live it like it's going to last forever. Yeah. So, Doc, let's be clear on a point here, that oftentimes, especially in the African-American community, all of the trinkets, the things that we may see as flashy, If you come from a community that has not had access, the accessibility into the financial means to to have generate, build and and hand off generational wealth is limited at best. So what 
we are fooled into thinking the fool's gold is if I can afford some way to get these trinkets, then others will see me as being wealthy or rich, even though I don't have the means to uphold that. So sometimes I think what becomes more important is um, almost the selling of a process that I have all of this. Um, the other thing, you use the term role model. And I think that a role model is extremely important. You've been a role model for me. You've never, I've never met you, but that you were a role model. Never knew who I was till this moment. I think what we are in need of, I talk about in the book, is a real model. Who are those real models in your life that you can turn to, look at, engage with, be curious with, be taught from their wisdom, and you have access to them more consistently? Because I had real models. My grandmother was a real model for me to develop this therapeutic sense. Um, so how do we find those real models and be curious with them, Doc? I think curiosity leads way to awareness. If I can be more aware um, financially, relationally, if I can become more aware, the chances that I make better and more informed, informed decisions increases exponentially. Um, so as a therapist, and you know, my job is not to change anyone. My job is to be curious with you and help raise the awareness around things that you may seek to change. I think that's really the cornerstone. Dr. Phil here. Come February 27th, you're going to be able to pick up a book called We've Got Issues, and you know we do. This is a book that says it's going to teach you how to stand strong for America's soul and sanity. And in this book, I set forth 10 principles for saving this society from going off the deep end. 10 principles for protecting your family. 10 principles for giving you what you need to flourish and have the life that you want for yourself and for your children and for your grandchildren. We've taken some wrong turns. We've been letting the loudest voices dictate some of the thinking that has taken us way off course. Well, I'm speaking up and bringing us back to the center of the road. I hope you'll pick this book up, and I hope you'll read it with a real open mind, because I'm pushing back against a lot of what you've been hearing. Somebody had to do it. Might as well be me. February 27th, we've got issues. Dr. Annie Shadle is herself a two-time NCAA national track and field champion, winning in the 1,500 meters outdoors and the mile indoors. Now she has a Ph.D. in health education and promotion. Her research focused on understanding the psycho-emotional and psychosocial challenges, preparation, and responses of Olympic gold medal winning athletes and she holds a BS in exercise science. Tell people what it is you do, what it is you focus on, because this isn't mental health, this is mental performance. Yeah, so I think just from my own athletic journey, so we follow our passions in life, so a little bit about my story was just really liking, understanding how we push our bodies, how we push those limits, um, understanding from the physiological standpoint, so my exercise science um, degree, really wanting to understand that. And, and through that journey, I discovered just how powerful that mind is. And I saw myself drawn to 
and wanting to know more about those that were successful, right? And how did they do what they did and how did they continually stand at the top of the podium, right? Win the national championships, win um, whatever, whatever championship you're after. Um, and so through that, I discovered more of the psychology aspects and just how powerful our mind is um, and just how, how much our mind just shapes everything that we do. That led me kind of back to really understanding what that performance mindset is and, and what the best of the best do, um, the environments that create these winning, these winning teams, these winning organizations, and, and that's kind of where I live and breathe and, and love, love to do that kind of work. So let's talk about pressure. What is your approach to helping people perform at that critical moment when it's their opportunity to choke or their opportunity to really step up and excel. Do you have a particular strategy, approach, philosophy about teaching athletes to deal with those big pressure moments? I worked with a coach once that said, I, pressure doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist, right? So in their mind, that's how they dealt with it, was just saying, like, it doesn't matter, right? Um, and then you hear the cliches of, like, well, pressure builds diamonds, and, you know, there's all of these things with dealing with pressure. But I think in general – Ideally, we've prepared our athletes for this moment, right? So um, the best athletes of the best athletes just live for those pressure moments, right? And this is when we see in the movies where it, like things get like foggy and kind of zoom out and you just see this like tunnel vision, right? And the best athletes like live for those moments um, and know exactly what to do. But even with that, they've probably had these moments as, they, as they've gone through sport to know how to handle those moments, right? So if we think about your progression and your development as an athlete, probably early on, there were coaches that helped them have those moments that now when there are these big moments in the Super Bowl or whatever it is, they know how to manage those. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think, are you saying acknowledge it and have a strategy for it when it comes up? Well, I would say the best of the best, like live for those moments. But I would say two uh, in those moments, right? So you take control of what happens, right? So you know exactly what you're doing. You know exactly the play. You know exactly how you're going to, what you need to do, and you stay focused on the moment, right? So you don't get overwhelmed by the moment, but you're able to like recognize where your mind is. You're able to put it where it needs to be and like block out any distractions that might be there, right? So whatever that is, the winning free throw of a basketball game, right? So you know exactly like Stay with your routine, take your deep breath, do your shot, right? So really being able to control your mind to stay focused on the task at hand to deliver your best performance in that moment. And when we see athletes maybe fall apart in those moments, probably because they were distracted outside of the moment. Something caught their attention, their mind wandered, they became overwhelmed as opposed to really dialing in, taking control of that moment and delivering your best performance in that moment. I play tennis a lot, like 300 days a year. I've play with a lot of really good players, some on the tour and all. And that aspect of getting to match point and double faulting when that's not who they are. They just don't double fault, but then they get to that moment and they hit it a foot under the tape because they tighten up. And everyone that I talk to says exactly what you just said. They get distracted in that moment. They start playing what if like, oh my God, what if I double fault? Oh my God, what if this? What if they, they start thinking about other than executing the shot? Really, every point weighs the same, but they put all of that time, all that pressure, and all the distraction comes into that moment. And of course, they're going to miss the ball. They don't even look at it. 
because they're so distracted. That's such a good point about not being distracted in that critical moment. Yep. And it's hard to keep our mind in the present, right? So it's really hard to do that in that moment. But again, it's training your mind to know exactly what you need to do in that moment. Yeah, but boy, it sure pays off if you can. And that's the difference. Those that really hone that skill versus those that don't. Right. When you do this with a team like the Jets, I guess there are some things you can do collectively with a team, but then there are things you have to do with the individual players because of their personal profiles. Yeah, I would, yeah, I would say, um, again, I love education. I love teaching. And so we can work on these things. Um, I say coach, I say teach. Um, and so we can talk about these things as a whole. We can discuss these various things. And then just like any other classroom or any other, um, even if like football classroom, whatever it is, each person has their own skill set that they need to improve upon, right? So just as we're teaching different installs or, or different things within different classrooms, like we're also working on exactly what we need to work on for our own selves. So we understand what our strengths are. We understand those areas where we need to get better with our, with our own mental game. When you first broach these subjects, when you first introduce working on mental performance, do you find some of the people poo-poo it, are resistant to it, and you have to win them over? Is there skepticism or do people lean into this? Uh, it's a combination of both, I would say. Uh, I think that as we're understanding more of the sports science frontier, we're really understanding the importance of the mental side. And I think um, sometimes if we don't understand, then maybe we might question some things. But I think it's in more of a curious way of just not knowing and not understanding. But I would say that every coach and every athlete that I've come across and interacted with, they understood the importance of developing that mental side or develop, knowing the importance of that. Um, and sometimes, you know, it might, they might not necessarily be open to some things, but in general, they know the importance of it. Right. So, um, I think as we're continuing to watch just sport in general move, um, we're becoming more accepting of mental performance, um, in, in these ways we're watching, this is like growing more as a career field now. Yeah, clearly it's got to be rewarding for you to see it when you are working with a player and you see them get focused, you see them get more efficient in their performance based on the skills that they're developing mentally to really step that performance up. It's got to be rewarding for you. Yeah, definitely. And I think once once someone can engage, once they engage in understanding all the benefits of sports psychology and performance psychology, and they really commit to it, then they definitely see the payoffs and the benefits for that. Well, if we've got people listening now that are athletes, whether a golfer, a tennis player, a runner, if you were going to give someone two or three things to really focus on to really enhance and build their performance, what would you tell them to focus on? One, I would say, what's the goal, right? So I want to understand like what the goal is, right? So what are we working towards? Because having a clear direction of, of what we're after is really important, right? Um, two, I would say investing in your own psychology. So just giving some time for self-reflection, understanding, um, you know, what your mind does, right? So does it get distracted? Does it get critical? Um, does it lose focus? just kind of understanding 
those areas where you want to improve in yourself, right? Um, and then just understanding that journey of there are going to be not great days, there's going to be hard days, but just kind of sticking with that plan and that commitment and that routine, that's really important. Well, I think those are three great things. Number one, I think it's so important for people to have a goal that they can identify and click it off because just getting better, what does that mean? Define better so you know when you click something off. And I think taking your own inventory and knowing how do I get in my own way is such a good point. What is it I do to get in my own way? Am I not present? Am I thinking about 10 other things when I'm working out or doing my sport or whatever? Or do I put pressure on myself? Do I have a negative internal? Whatever I do to get in my own way, people really need to sit down and say, what is it that I do that I can really improve? Insight's a key. I think people just really have to do that. And then figuring out what you're willing to do to get there. This became a real focus of mine. I guess I was 12 years old. I was on a football team and we were really good. And we had great equipment and great coaches and a lush green field. And we had a game that got rained out. So on Monday, the coach from the Salvation Army called our coach and said, hey, I understand your game rained out on Saturday. Do you think we could come over and scrimmage you guys today, Monday? And our coach said, yeah, sure. And this ragtag bunch of kids came over, and they didn't have football shoes. They didn't have football pants. The kid that lined up across from me rolled up his jeans to the knees, so they were like football pants. And he was wearing loafers. He used masking tape to put the number four on his button-up shirt that he put on over his shoulder pads. None of their helmets matched. And, you know, we had all these fancy uniforms. They beat us so bad. It was like a track meet. Honest to God, they were running up and down that field. And I got in the car afterwards and looked at my dad and said, what the hell just happened? And he said, well, you just got your ass handed to you on a platter, boy. And I thought, well, I was looking for something a little more in-depth than that. And he said, they were just hungry. And I remember that moment in that car thinking, I want whatever they've got. Whatever those kids have inside, if they can do so much with so little, I was envious of those kids. I wanted what they had inside. And from that moment on, I was focused on figuring out why people do what they do and don't do what they don't do. Understanding motivation. I wanted to know what made those kids so hungry, so motivated. It was a life-changing moment for me. And that's why I've been so focused on this and love what you do so much. Those kids, they were so thrilled to get a chance to play on grass because their field was just so hard dirt and had a manhole cover on the 40-yard line. It was terrible. And they were so excited with what we took for granted. They had such a better attitude than we did. I learned so much that day, and I've never forgotten it. It's been God, almost 60 years, and I've never forgotten it. 
it was such a mental difference between their attitude and ours. So I get it. I totally yeah. get and admire what you do. Dr. Daniel Amen has helped millions of people change their brains and as a product, change their lives through Amen Clinics, his best-selling books, and public television programs. Head trauma is not just major trauma of like going through a windshield or falling 10 feet onto a concrete floor. It can be small repetitive traumas like, you know, kids heading soccer balls just over and over. You do that a hundred times a week and these things can accumulate and it can be any number of things. And if we think back at the times in our lives where, you know, we fell on the ice and hit our head or, you know, we slipped and fell back and banged our head just as we hit the ground. These things have an effect. And if you check them and see that there was an impact, this can be helped. It can be changed. The truth is, if somebody does come in and find out, oh, wow, yeah, my brain is not well, that's not a static situation because in many or most situations, the brain can get better. The brain can heal. The brain can improve by taking proper steps, correct? By putting the brain in a healing environment. So I did the big NFL study. I don't know if we've ever talked about this. I don't think so. When the NFL was having trouble with the truth about traumatic brain injury in football, uh, I got to see Anthony Davis, the Hall of Fame running back from USC. Um, he's called the Notre Dame killer because in 1972, he scored six touchdowns against the University of Notre Dame. But he was having trouble with his memory, with his temper, and then he had periods of confusion. And when I scanned him at 54, his brain clearly was a traumatic brain injury, and it looked like he was 85. But five months later, his brain looked remarkably better. And then he and I went to the Retired Players Association and gave a presentation and subsequently, I've scanned and treated 300 NFL players, high levels of damage. Stop lying about it. Playing football is a brain damaging sport. Brain is soft, skull is hard, skull has sharp bony ridges. You cannot have those level of intense over and over impact without damaging the brain. But the exciting part of my work with the NFL players, 80% of them get better when I put them on a rehabilitation program, which is so simple. We basically teach them about brain health, multiple vitamin with high doses of B6, B12, and folate, because that helps boost brain function, high dose fish oil, and then a brain boost that works in six different ways. And I published that study. Um, the exciting news that still very few people know <clears throat> is even if you have been bad to your brain, you can make it better and I can prove it. And that's what I get so excited. You remember we did the show with Gary Busey. I love Gary. And not only did he play football, where he tried to break people's sternums, you know, the big breastbone. Right. But he had substance abuse problem. 
and they had a bad motorcycle accident. And then he had a tumor in his sinus that they radiated. So his brain was terrible. But by doing the right things, he's now got a show on Netflix and, you know, he's able to work where before people just sort of think of him as a joke, even though he's an Oscar nominated actor for the Buddy Holly story. And it's just this message over and over again. Your brain can be better if you put it in a healing environment. And these are not radical things. You're saying B6, B12 with folic acid and fish oils, right? Yeah. And some other nutrients. I'm a a fond of ginkgo and phosphatidylserine and N-acetylcysteine. And I always think when I use supplements, I use them in combinations because the brain doesn't get sick in one way. And so it's not going to get better in one way. That's why there's never going to be the medicine for Alzheimer's disease, because it's not one thing. There's 11 roads to Alzheimer's disease. We have to get on top of all of them. Right. It just seems to me that if people are really worrying, if they're worrying that they're experiencing depression, if they're worrying that they're losing touch with reality, if they're observing themselves to be exhibiting what they would consider psychiatric symptomatology, if they're being erratic in their relationships, if they're just doing things that are interfering with the pursuit of their healthy goals. So they're starting to get worried, like, am I starting to melt down here? Am I starting to really be unhealthy mentally? But they don't want to tell anybody. They're suffering this silently. They don't want to let on for fear of judgment from family or rejection from employment or whatever. I've talked to so many police officers that have said, I don't want to go to the employee assistance program because they say that that's confidential, but the fact that you even have a file there can cause you to not be promoted or not advance in your career in some way. But if they went to have their brain studied, their brain looked at, they could get answers that could save their life and their career and their happiness. And this is what I've been so anxious to talk to you about because I've had so many men and women tell me, yeah, Dr. Phil, I hear you about the stigma, but my career is on the line here. I'm in a position where I could be declared an impaired professional or I've just looked at the culture And if I do get the help you're talking about, it will absolutely torpedo my career. And this is why you're saying the end of mental illness increases compassion, gets rid of judgment, takes away the stigma, and it's a completely different paradigm than what we now live with. So at the risk of being politically incorrect, um, I trained I'm also a child psychiatrist and I did my child psychiatry training in Hawaii. And what many people don't know is that Hawaii is an Asian culture. 
uh, two thirds of the population is either Chinese or Japanese. And Asian cultures are shame based cultures. And so if someone's having a mental health problem, they don't want to bring shame to their family. And so our experience was families wouldn't come ask for help until the children were like floridly psychotic, that they waited until the last possible incident. But at the same time, those families would do anything to give their child an advantage. And so changing the discussion from mental illness to brain health leads people to go, oh, with a better brain, they're going to do better in school. With a better brain, they're going to have more friends. With a better brain, they're going to be happier. And so it helps decrease this idea of shame. I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't act this way to, you know, I wonder if my brain's not firing right. And what I often say to the kids, because we see little kids and old people, it's like, you have a great brain. It's just not tuned right. Sort of like you have a Ferrari and the engine's like working way too hard. So we just need to tune it so you can be the best. And kids love that. They like, oh, make me better as opposed to fix me which they just don't want any part of. You have a comment in your book. You say, since 1999, suicide has increased 33%, enough so that it's decreasing overall life expectancy. And during the same period of time, cancer has decreased 27%. To me, that speaks to the fact that the stigma is there. People are not asking for help when their actual quality of life has eroded to the point that they can't endure it anymore. But cancer, they get help because there's no stigma. So one's up a third, the other's down a third. And since the pandemic, I think suicide is up way more. I've just never seen anything like it. Um, and, And it's because we're working on the wrong paradigm. You know, why are we making such progress in cancer and heart disease and virtually every other aspect of medicine, but we're not making progress in psychiatry? And I think it's because the paradigm is wrong, making diagnoses based on symptoms with no biological data. And uh, the end of mental illness is trying to like go, there's another way to do this. And we study our outcomes at Amen Clinics. So we've been doing it since 2011. If you come to see us, we actually enter you into a formal outcome study. And on average, patients have 4.2 diagnoses. They're complicated. They have um, failed 3.3 providers and five medications. And at the end of six months, if we treat them, 84% are better. No one's got those outcomes that publishes them. And it's because we get more information and we're decreasing stigma. But what I love, we increase compliance. People want better brains. Like with my NFL group, they like being coached. And so they'll do the things knowing that in four months or six months later, I'm likely to rescan them and go, are we doing better? And I just get so excited 
about that. And I mentioned to you when we were not um, on camera about this kid, Jose, who came to see me because of your show, like 10 years ago, you were doing a show on compulsive cheaters and he cheated on his wife eight times in four years. His wife had a gun. She was going to kill him. And as part of the show, I got to scan him. He had a damaged brain from football, mixed martial arts, had terrible habits. And when we fixed his brain and seven months later, I scanned it so much better. He's making better decisions. And, and I don't know if you'd agree with me, but ultimately a person's success in life is a sum of all the decisions they've made. And as you make better decisions, your wife doesn't want to kill you anymore. <laughs> You're more likely to not have to visit your children on the weekend. And he just graduated to, from nurse anesthetist school. I, I'm just so proud of him. With a better brain comes a better life. Jim Gray, I mean, you guys know this is a 12-time Emmy Award-winning sportscaster. He's a sports historian. And when I say historian, this is a guy that has made his life talking to what we call goats, the greatest of all time. I've got to ask you this question because you get a different perspective than probably anybody else on the planet about this. And I've asked some of them this question. But is there something that you have seen as a common denominator that makes goats goats? And what I mean is, if you look at athletes and you see somebody like a Tom Brady or a Michael Jordan, and you look at their reaction time, their speed in the 40, their strength on the bench press or whatever— there may not be that big a difference between them and somebody on the practice squad or somebody that didn't make the cut. What, in your opinion, makes the greatest of all time in their sport? Is there a common denominator that you see cut across these men and women that make them the greatest? They all go about it differently, but I can see something common. They all have touched perfection from one moment to another, but they all want to hold it and grasp it. And it's like a jellyfish and it just slips through their fingers. But when they touch it, it's like being an addict. They want to touch it again and again and again, because they know they can. And I asked Kobe Bryant about that at one point. And he said, look, I'm a realist. I know perfection is unattainable, but it sure is a heck of a lot of fun trying. And that's what they do. Brady has had the perfect quarter, the perfect comeback, the perfect game, almost a perfect season, even though they lost to the Giants. So he's been there and he's won six times. So many people would say after one, that's enough. These guys never have enough because they want it more and more. And all, the best example I could really give you, Dr. Phil, is think about Michael Phelps for just a moment. Michael Phelps spent the majority of his adult life underwater, staring at a black line day in and day out, month in and month out, year in and year out. For what reason? So that he could figure out how to be an eyelash or a fingernail ahead of somebody else from the rest of the world so that he could win those 28 medals and those 23 gold medals. 
So he was tormented by that, but nobody else has ever done it. He's the most decorated ever. But think about the mental anguish. And he did a beautiful documentary about this on HBO within the past six or eight months. Think about the mental anguish of putting everything else in your life aside to do that. But while you're doing that, all of this that's gone in your life has to go through your mind because you're just staring at a black line. Now think about that. How many people on the planet can have that discipline? Well, I can name a few of them. Tiger Woods, Michael Phelps, Michael Jordan, Muhammad Ali, Tom Brady, Floyd Mayweather. There's just so very few, so very few. Serena Williams, and, and there you have it. I mean, so that's why they're so special, and that's why they're goats. Yeah, that's a drive that comes from inside. I don't think you can coach it. I mean, from a psychological perspective, I don't think that's something you can instill in people. It's got to be a hunger that comes from inside. And I think if you can ever figure out how to coach that, instill that, role model that, in some way communicate that in a way that somebody can emulate or embrace. Jim, if you and I could figure out how to bottle that, we'd put Bill Gates in the shade. But (laughs) I don't know how you do that. And maybe there's that extra level of talent, that extra vision or something, but it's got to come down to that drive. It's got to come down to that where they're willing to make the sacrifice and that singularness of purpose. I just believe that to be true. Well, there's a, there's a form of immortality that goes into this. And if it was easy, everybody would do it, but it's not easy. And that's why we have so few who we can look at and say, there they are. And, you know, then there's all of these things that come in. It's not just hard work and dedication. It's proper coaching and mentorship. And it's, you know, the confluence of events that that stack all this up. Luck is also involved in it. You know, I know that Coach Wooden used to say, you know, the harder I work, the more luck I get, the luckier I get. (laughs) So, you know, there's there's that as well. But when you see what these guys go through, I get to go every summer uh, up to Yellowstone uh, National Park and see Tom Brady uh, work out. He goes up there with his private trainer and a couple of his friends, sometimes some of the receivers that he works with, Danny Amendola, uh, perhaps Rob Gronkowski, Julian Edelman, they've all joined him over the years. Not every year, but from time to time. And if you see what this guy puts in, and this is the week and the month before training camp at altitude. Right. And he's trying to get that perfect throw to a bunch of guys, you know, some of us 60 years old plus, and he's out there, working that and he is engaged in that as he will be trying to win a Super Bowl because he has to get the mechanics right. And if he leaves that field that morning, he will not leave until he gets it right. And if that means it's another 20 minutes or another hour, he'll stand there with this with this coach, Alex Guerrero, his personal coach and confidant, and he will get it right. Well, I'm sure it's the same exact thing. I know it is with Tiger Woods, you know, just think about what that took uh, after all of the surgeries to not win a major from 2008 to 2019, yet that's the only way he measures himself to have the neck surgery, the back surgery, the knee surgeries, uh, the scandal 
the emotional problems that he had to endure, the psychological problems, the hitting of the fire hydrant, the DUI, and then to come back, come back and do that 11 years later at the age of 43? Yeah. And when you don't need to work another day in your life financially, because there are different kinds of currency, you know, there's social currency, spiritual currency, there's psychological currency, and there's that achievement currency. I believe they are driven by a different kind of currency than everybody else. Because if you're doing it for the money, you're long past it by then. That's a great, great point. It reminds me of a film that, that Bud Greenspan, who I mentioned earlier, did. And, and everybody listening should go watch this film. It's online on YouTube. It's called The Last African Runner. It's a story about John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania in 1968, the Olympic Games. And I won't ruin it. I'll give you the 30-second Reader's Digest. Everybody had gone home. The closing ceremonies were over. He was running in the hour and a half after the race ended. And there was John Stephen Aquari in the middle of the street still running with a broken kneecap. And Ugh. he finished the race. He finished the race to an empty stadium. The flame had been doused. Everybody had gone back to their home countries, okay? And here was John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania because it was so beautifully written by Bud. A voice calls from within to go on. So he goes on. And so he was asked after the race. In fact, I asked him in 1984, and Bud had asked him several times, why did you finish the race? And he said, my country, Tanzania, saw fit to send me 5,000 miles away to this race. They didn't send me to start the race. They sent me to finish the race. Yeah. Yeah, now that's a driven individual, and they say integrity is what you do when nobody's watching. <laughs> that's what he did when nobody was watching. Everybody had gone home, that's for damn sure. I just never forget that line written by Bud Greenspan. His brother was a great narrator, a man named David Perry. A voice calls from within to go on, so he goes on. And then the last line in it is, all honor to John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania. Well, that's what these guys do. They honor themselves. They honor their families. They honor the sport. They honor their countries and they honor humanity when they do this stuff. Absolutely. That's something we should all aspire to. You wrote a book about talking to goats and in all humility and candor, you definitely will be in someone else's book about goats because when it comes to doing what you do as a broadcaster, you are definitely the greatest of all time at what you do. So what drives Jim Gray? What keeps you going after all this? This life that I've been able to lead and all of the people that I've been able to meet, I mean, it's been so fantastic. I mean, it's just been great. And I love meeting the people and I love listening to their stories. And I, I want to, you know, hear how they did it, why they did it. And, you know, try and see if, if what I can do in these interviews can help somebody else and help future generations so that we can have more goats. And so uh, I, I'm driven to hear other people's stories, to learn from them. And I want to be better tomorrow than I was yesterday. I can still improve. I've only done, I've done tens of thousands of interviews. I've done one or two of them right. Otherwise I've stumbled or I forgot about something or I didn't follow up right or I, you know, how many times do you walk away from a show, Dr. Phil, and you watch it 
and you say, boy, I should have asked this, or why did I stumble on that question? We still, I'm still trying to get it right. Every single show. Exactly. <laughs> Every single show. 